Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. It's also in the Pew Bible, page 1119. The promise realized through faith. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. I want to thank uh, David for that introduction. It reminds me of a story that's told about Dr. James Dobson. Some of you recall Dr. Dobson know his work. He was at a, a dinner at which he was the speaker, and the master ceremonies got up and gave a very, very gracious and flowery introduction. When Dr. Dobson got up, he said, I want to thank the master ceremonies for that introduction. He said, I only wish my parents could have been here to hear it. He said, uh, my father would have enjoyed it immensely, and my mother would have believed it. I always think about that uh, gratefully. Well, last time when I was, I was here two weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, and we, we raised a number of questions uh, on that day. And one of those questions I asked was, what difference does faith make? Uh, and I told the story of having, when my wife and I, <clears throat> I'd become a Christian at Labrie. Interestingly enough, the verse that God used from Dr. Schaefer's teaching was Romans 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. So having come to know Christ, we were on our bicycles in England, and we had the opportunity to have a dinner with a person who had invited us home. And during the course of that conversation, he was lamenting one of his neighbors who was not friendly at all. He had, he had bought a house in the neighborhood, moved in, blocked off access to a public walkway that had been part of the community's life for years. And as Bob was telling about this guy, he said, I just don't understand how anybody could do that. Um, I, I just don't know what he believes that would make him do that. And I said to him, well, you know, a bit ago when we were talking, you said that it didn't matter what one believes just as long as one was sincere. 
You know, you said it was important to believe something. It didn't matter what. And he stopped me. And he said, oh, I meant that in philosophy and, and religion. And then he stopped himself and he said, I guess it does make a difference, doesn't it? Yeah, it does make a difference what we believe. And so I've entitled my sermon this morning, A Reasonable Faith, because we want to look at Abraham's experience of faith, or, or more properly, Paul's presentation of Abraham's experience of faith, that we might learn ourselves uh, what our faith is, where our faith is focused. So I've got four sections this morning. Um, you'll excuse me, pastors are tempted to make alliteration. So this is the fuss over faith, the facts of faith, the focus of faith, and the fruit of faith. Uh, one of my seminary professors would say, Mr. Stewart, that's too clever by half, but that's what I'm doing this morning. So what's the fuss over faith? Why does that even come up? Well, as you read the, the book of Romans, I said beginning with Paul's proclamation that, that the gospel is the power of God and its salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. Paul then unfolds an indictment, if you will, of the world at large, and then more specifically indictment of his Jewish brothers and sisters for their failure to recognize what God was seeking to do in Jesus. They rejected Jesus, and Paul now is trying to explain why the entire world both needs Jesus and the Jewish world should have understood and been open to receiving him. And how he does that is go back to Father Abraham. He explores Father Abraham's experience of coming to faith. And then he ends up here in chapter 4 by asking, how is it that Abraham was justified. What shall we say, verse 1, what shall we say of chapter 4, was gained by, our our, by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. And then he goes through, well, if Abraham was justified by works, uh, then God owed him something. But, but before, before God, nobody is owed anything. So obviously Abraham did not come into righteousness by something he did. But in verse 5, and the one who does not work, that is, doesn't trust in works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we can cross works off of the possible reasons that Abraham was seen as righteous. We can also cross off circumcision, that is, the, the devout following of the covenant which God had made with Israel. And Paul points out that that Abraham was accounted, his faith was accounted to him before he was circumcised, not after. So obviously circumcision, which came following by maybe 30 years, some scholars would say a dozen, but the, the right or the sign of circumcision came after Abraham believed God. So we're going to cross off circumcision. And then he goes to law and he says... In the, in the passage that we read, if the law could have brought righteousness, then faith would be null and the promise would be void. But in order, verse 16, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not just to the adherents of the law, but to all, 
in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So neither works nor circumcision nor law are the foundation of Abraham's righteousness, but instead faith. And it is faith in Jesus Christ, of course, that, that Paul is driving at, that he is grounding, that he is defending. It is faith in Christ which is accounted righteous to us who believe. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. And so Paul has set aside these things that his critics, particularly the Jewish critics of, of the gospel, would have raised as alternatives to trusting in Christ. Works, circumcision, and law. And so, so the fuss over faith has been answered. And Paul then moves to say, what, what is the nature of this faith? And as we read through it, the possibility, of course, is that verse 19, if you'll jump down to there, that you can be weak in faith. That is, uh, the Greek word there is without faith, apostia, or you can be strong in faith, as verse 20 says. So, what is faith built on? There is a reasoned trust in faith, and without that reasoning, without that calculating, without that thinking, there can't be real faith. Now, I did my graduate work in the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. Some of you may know Kierkegaard's name. Uh, I was completely unfamiliar with it, but I had come to Christ through listening to Dr. Francis Schaeffer's exposition of the Book of Romans. And because of that, I read nearly everything I could that Dr. Schaefer had written. And what I discovered that Dr. Schaefer had no time at all for Kierkegaard. Uh, he pronounced it Kierkegaard, but that was the way he did it. And so I thought, well, you know, any enemy of Dr. Schaefer's is an enemy of mine. I probably ought to figure out why. And I devoted myself to studying Kierkegaard and writing on his works for my dissertation. But I discovered something. You've probably heard the phrase leap of faith. You, you, you nod, you've heard leap of faith. Well, that comes from Kierkegaard, but wrongly understood. I want to just sort of stretch your mind for a little and maybe glaze over your eyeballs. But Kierkegaard, his in, entire work as a philosopher, as a writer, as a thinker, he said was a spy in the service of a higher power. I want to say, using our terms, Kierkegaard was an evangelist to the Danish Lutheran culture, community, church of his day. And one of the things that he was most exercised about was the notion that somehow or other, if you were baptized in the church, you were automatically a Christian and everything was settled and didn't have to worry about it. And so one of the things that he presented was the notion of Socrates as a man of high moral character, perhaps the highest moral character imaginable before Christ came along. Now, Socrates was condemned by the elders, the rulers of the city, for leading the youth astray. Socrates' approach to learning was to ask questions and, and then to press the answers to those questions with further questions in order to clarify what people were actually thinking and believing. And because of that, he was sentenced to death he was going to be put to death. He could choose to drink the hemlock poison or he could renounce all of his teaching. 
And Kierkegaard looks at that and says, Socrates was a man of great moral character, a man, a man of great conviction. And so because of his convictions, because of his character, he chose death rather than to renounce what he believed was true. And Kierkegaard said, this is the highest accomplishment that a human can make, is the leap of faith. Now stay with me. He said, Socrates leapt into death, not knowing what the gods of the next life would be like. In, you might say, absolute, complete ignorance. He chose death over dishonor, and that's to be lauded, and that's the leap of faith. But, says Kierkegaard, that's not the highest that a human can accomplish. Because in Christian faith, it is not a leap into the dark or a leap into subjectivism or in a leap, leap into emotionalism. It is, in fact, a relationship with the God who has come into our creation that we might know him. The, the incarnation of Jesus Christ brings God the infinite into the realm of the finite. He brings the eternal into the temporal. And because we can know him in this life, we can know God, then it isn't a leap of faith into the next life. It is simply, says Kierkegaard, holding the hand of the one whose hand has held us as we cross the boundary into the next life. And so the, the, the existentialist, if you will, took leap of faith and made it into something that just is like my friend Bob. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere and you take a leap of faith. But Kierkegaard says, no, faith is a relationship with the God of creation, first of all, and the God of resurrection. He recognized this God who gives life to the dead, resurrection, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Let there be light. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Echoing, of course, the words of Genesis as God creates. That, that biblical faith, because of that, always comes from outside ourselves. Nobody discovers the truth of Christianity. You may hear it, you may become awakened to it, but it's always because it's a message delivered by an outside voice, an outside word. It is, the, it is the word made flesh, which is the foundation of our faith. So the facts of faith are that a God who did not need to create created out of love, and that a God who did not need to redeem gave his only son to die upon a cross that you and I might be redeemed from our sins. And those are the facts, if you will, of faith. Paul, excuse me, Peter says as much as we covered last time in Acts chapter 2 as he completes his sermon there on the day of Pentecost and, and describes how Jesus had come and, and because God was with him had been able to do things and, and that you put him to death through the hands of the Romans. And he finishes by saying in verse 36 of, of Acts chapter 2, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is the fact of faith. 
That is what we are asked to believe, not, not something that we, you know, I do believe in ghosts. I do, I do, I do. You know, that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to leap into an emotional unknown, into a uh, subjective unknown. We are called to accept the truth of God's word as it has been declared. And that's why I say no one comes to Christian faith because they, quote, think it up. In fact, I go back to Kierkegaard who said, he used the phrase absolute paradox, capital A with an absolute, capital P with paradox. And he said the absolute paradox is this, that the eternal became the temporal, that, that, that God became man. And you cannot resolve that. And he argues you can't even imagine that because that's to violate the law of non-contradiction. If it's eternal... It's not temporal. If it's infinite, it's not finite. You can't put those two things together logically and make any sense. So Kierkegaard's argument is that you, you can't invent or discover Christianity because it's against reason. Don't hear me saying that it's unreasonable, but it's against reason because it says two things which are contradictory become one in Jesus Christ. The infinite God becomes incarnate in the human person of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So those are the facts of faith. And, and the facts of Abraham's faith were the creation of God. He lived in the world. He knew how the world worked. He saw the wonders of the heavens above. And a walk with God, a God who had called him first to leave his family in Ur of the Chaldees to move into a land he didn't know, and a God who had promised him that he was going to make of him a family of nations, even when he was beyond, humanly speaking, beyond having children. So this leads us from the facts of faith to the focus. What, what is the focus of Abraham's faith? What is the focus of ours? It is a focus upon God himself. One of the commentators I read says this, faith is believing or trusting a person and its reasonableness, there's that word again, its reasonableness depends upon the reliability of the person being trusted. Now, Abraham knew there was no one more trustworthy than God. God was worthy of all his trust. And yet, what he sees, as our scripture tells us, he considers his own body, verse 19, which was as good as dead. There's death. He was over 100 years old. And he considered the barrenness, and in the Greek, that word is the deadness of Sarah's womb. So he has two dead things before his eyes, his own body and hers, and yet God says to him, I'm going to make from your own loins, from your own physical person, a family of nations. Now, Abraham could have said, hmm, that's impossible. Can't be done. Or he could have said, the one who promised that is the God who, who made all things to begin with and who is able to raise things from the dead. The writer of Hebrews speaks of Abram's faith, and he says that when it came to offering Isaac for sacrifice, 
he re since he believed that God could, in fact, raise the dead, he received Isaac back, as it were, from death. He, he experienced the, the resurrection of Isaac in his faith because God could raise him from the dead, and that's why Abraham was able to demonstrate his faith by going to the mountain in obedience to God to offer Isaac a sacrifice. So, so the focus is God. The focus is God himself. I love it. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on this says that, that faith is always looking at the promises. As Abraham thought of the promises of God, he didn't ask God to explain, well, how are you going to do that? You know, tell me scientifically how it is that Sarah could conceive. Tell me, tell me scientifically, what, you know, what are the formulas? What are the um, rules of nature? What are the, the rules of reproduction that I could understand what you're doing? He didn't ask for an explanation. He simply believed God was able to do. And not only was God able to do, he was persuaded that God was willing to do. You see, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, you know, I know that you could give me, you know, a thousand bucks. I just don't think you're going to. It's two different things, right? I know that you could do this, God, but who am I? Why would you want to do that for me? You see, is God able? Well, yes, creation would suggest, resurrection would demonstrate, but is he willing for me? Is he willing to act on my behalf? And that is the question that Abraham has to answer. And he does so by believing God, which was accounted. It's an interesting word, that, that word accounted. It was counted to him or accounted to him. Reckoned is another way of saying that. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. Yes, God, you are God, the creator God, the redeemer God, the ruling God, the sovereign God, the God who gives life into dead things. You are that God, and you are that God to me and for me. And on the basis of that affirmation, on the basis of that acceptance, to, to let the God of the universe be God, Abraham was reckoned as righteous. God is the God of creation, and God is the God of resurrection. And it is those things which are set before us when we are called not to believe that from our body will come a family of nations, but to believe that the God who promised is the God who is faithful to do. I am not ashamed. It, Paul doesn't mean there I'm not embarrassed by. That's not the meaning of ashamed. Ashamed is when you go to sit on a chair and one of the legs is wobbly and it crunches underneath you. You're ashamed in the chair because it, it didn't bear the weight you put upon it. You see the difference? One's red-faced and one might be a, you know, a broken limb, but they're different. And what, what Paul is saying there in Romans 1 is, I am not putting my weight on a chair that fails to hold me up. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God. It's not about me. It's about God. And then that leads us, of course, so what is the fruit? What is the fruit of this faith that Paul unfolds that was Abraham's 
But then he says in verse 23, the words, it was counted to him or reckoned to him or accounted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted, accounted, reckoned to us what will be. Well, not faith, obviously, but righteousness. If you look at verse 24, righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who did what? Who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. He was put to death, delivered up for our trespasses, as we just said in the creed, and raised for our justification. That is the gospel, in essence. Jesus Christ put to death on the cross for your sins and mine, and raised from the dead in demonstration that that sacrifice was absolutely acceptable to God. That in fact, that, that sacrifice was by God's foreknowledge and intention. Jesus was put to death, not by mistake or by, by God being unaware, but he came to give his life as a ransom for many. And having done so, we believing in that are now counted righteous through Christ. It was in our scripture portion this morning. Romans 5.1 kind of leaps over the italics in the capital or the number five. You know, it's interesting. None of those things are in the original text. You realize there are no chapters. There are no verses. It's just all Greek. So it's much easier if you read Greek fluently, and I don't. It's much easier just to go down and ignore those things. So after this argument about Abraham's faith, Paul says, flowing right on, therefore, therefore, because of these things I just said, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the fruit of faith? It is a security in this life. It is, it is having life now. And, you know, in Kierkegaard's terms, it is walking with the God who holds our hand and welcomes us into the next life. It is that kind of relationship which we are privileged to possess now as, as the limited, living, sinful creatures that we are. We nevertheless have been justified by faith, by faith and have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that peace extends in a whole lot of ways and this sermon isn't about that, but I wanna just touch on those because that's part of the fruit of faith, is that we look at a world around us that has, as, as Peter says, without God and without hope in the world. One of the most devastating things that has, I don't think, been caused by COVID, but has been at least exhibited or exposed by COVID is the absolute alienation of individuals. We are set adrift from one another. And yet because of the, quote, marvels of technology, we can have in our hand all the latest disasters of the world, from you know, a shooting down the street to a, a flood overseas to you know, a war in the Ukraine. It's all right there in our hand for us to read and to have absolutely no power over it all. And the result is you know, an entire culture, a generation at least, if not two now because of technology, who are alienated from one another because they'd rather be on their phone than talking but they are also made anxious by a world with which they have no contact and about which they can do nothing. And so there is a 
you might say, an, an invidious depression that has just soaked into the fabric of our culture, into the mindset of the world in which we live, without God and without hope. So one of the fruits of faith is the ability to look at death and the reality of death in this life and say, yes, but that's because of the fall. In other words, there is a solution to that problem. You're not powerless before death. Yes, you're powerless to overcome it, but you can have life in this life, a life that Jesus came to give. I, the devil comes only to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, have it abundantly. I spent an hour this week talking with a, a fellow at one of the workplaces I visit about this very thing. You know, what are your goals? What are your hopes? What are your, you know, what's your future? I don't know. I don't have one. I can't see one. That's awful empty, you know? Um, I probably mentioned this before, but I'm, I'm a deer hunter, grew up, you know, in a hunting family. And one of the things you did as deer season approached was you took your rifle down to the sportsman's club and you sighted it in. Now, for those of you who aren't from a gun culture, let me just explain. You don't shoot at a wall and then go paint a bullseye around where the bullet hole hits. It's not how it works. You put a target on the wall and you shoot at that. And that lets you know, you know, as your rifle shoot it in, even if it is, are you any good? But that's the point. There's a target to aim at, to discover kind of where you are as a marksman or not a marksman. And that's the way life is. If there's no target, if there's no purpose, if you don't know what you were made for, how can you know what to live for? In other words, what are you aiming at? And this is the question I put to this young man, and he had no answer. Now, he had a sense of emptiness. He had a sense of meaninglessness. He had a sense of purposelessness. Those are present. Those are available. Those you can access pretty readily. Just, just live today. But to have hope, to have a purpose, to know why you are here on earth is to be friends with God. He made us for fellowship with himself. And so the, the notion of the abyss of nothingness, where you have to kind of leap of faith, as Kierkegaard described it, the, the abyss of nothingness does not exist for those who know themselves as children of the Heavenly Father. It's not a nothingness. It's called life. And as, as M. Scott Peck wrote in his book, um, The Road Less Traveled, life is difficult. It's difficult, but he said, once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Now, are there hard things? Certainly there are hard things. I just got news yesterday of a, a friend I've known for years and years who's now diagnosed with, with brain cancer that spread to his, his nose and his throat. Uh, his days are limited. I sat with him and had a burger, you know, three weeks ago. Life is difficult. There are hard things. But neither nothingness nor death can defeat the life that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Calvin, Calvin writes about that. You know, we, we live on this side of the resurrection. So where Abraham had the call of God to leave Ur, the, the promise of God that he would be the father of many nations, we have been given the evidence of the creation around us and the evidence of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. We know God is able. And we know because he sent his son to die for us that he will 
fact, Paul says there in Romans 7, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if, if he didn't spare the greatest thing, you know, what's a few things to, to give to his beloved children? But Calvin says this about this, and I want to sort of end on this. These are Calvin's words, and I'm going to wet my throat. Let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just. We are covered with sins. He testifies that he is propitious and kind to us. Outward judgments threaten his wrath. What then is to be done, asked Calvin? We must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. We must, with closed eyes, pass by ourselves and all things connected with us, that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's words in Romans chapter 7, I think this rings absolutely true with them. Paul laments, you know, there's things I should have done I haven't done. There are things I did that I shouldn't have done. Woe is me. What will rescue me from this body of death, this body that just keeps producing things that are worthy of condemnation? How, how can I ever be free of that? Because I, I, the things I shouldn't do, I do, and the things I should do, I don't do, and that's just true of me. And Paul says at the end of chapter 7, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, and then there's that chapter break and the big number eight in our Bibles, but that's not there for Paul. For Paul is, what shall deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What an absolutely contra-evidential statement to make. Paul, we just looked at your life. In fact, you looked at your life with us, and we acknowledge that you're kind of a rotten sinner. I mean, I'm going to leave myself out of this conversation. But Paul, that's true of you. What are you going to do about that? And Paul says, you know what? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not denying that he's a sinner. Not saying that somehow or other God was wrong about him or I'm saying wrong about me. No. Here's the reality. And Calvin says, what is to be done? We must with closed eyes pass by ourselves and all things connected with us that nothing may hinder or prevent us from believing that God is true. And how does Paul say that? Again, jump over the little italicized division between chapters 4 and 5 and read verse 1. Paul says, because of all these things that I have just shared with you, that I have spoken to you, that I have demonstrated to you from the life of Abraham, therefore, because of those, since we have been justified by faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Abraham is our father in faith. And the God who counted him righteous on account of his faith is the God who has accounted us righteous by that same faith. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. In that, let us rejoice. Let's bow together. Father, the psalmist cries out, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? And yet you have made him little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor. Lord, that glory and honor is not ours, but is that which belongs to our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And, and his honor and glory and righteousness have been imputed to us, who not by works, not by law, not by circumstances or circumcision, by none of these things have we entered into that inheritance, but rather by faith alone. And so we rejoice in your grace to us. We glory in it, and we praise you for it. And we ask, Father, that as we live by faith, that the works of our lives might shine like beacons in the midst of a crooked and perverse and dark generation, that others may indeed see our good works, which you have enabled, and praise your name, our Father who is in heaven. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.